Welcome to Below the Line, where we talk about working in Hollywood from the crew perspective. My name is Skid. I'm a former assistant director and your host. Today's episode is a change of pace. We're talking about The Gesture and the Word, a 2020 short film about a lonely postman who learns to open himself up to the prospect of love. It spent most of the last year in limited release. It was accepted at 87 different film festivals and won 65 awards. Currently, you can stream it online for free at Amaletto. If you'd like to watch it before listening further, go to omeleto.com backslash 257318 backslash. You can also Google search for the gesture in the word and you should find it within a few clicks. The film is 23 minutes long and it's possible today's discussion could contain spoilers for the film. My guests today are going to talk about both how this project came together and share some insights about the festival circuit. First, Helen Alexis Yanov is the film's writer, director, and producer. Alexis, nice to see you again. Well, that's good. Welcome back. Nice to see you. Thanks. Thanks. I'm glad you're oh, here. Thank you. <laughs> We're also joined today by the film's cinematographer, Matt Rogers. Matt, welcome to Below the Line. Thank you. Thank you. Nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Again, likewise. Glad to have you both. Alexis, let's start with you. We know each other from back in my film days in L.A. when we worked together on a couple of projects. But talk to me about the path from production assistant to writer-director. I stopped PAing around 2006, and I had been on set for five, six years as a production assistant, and I kept being told that if I was going to direct, I had to direct. And so I was like, well, if I'm on the set all the time, I'm not going to be directing. So... In 2007, I started doing, a, I did a short film, I did some uh, spec commercials, and then I moved to Paris, France, because I thought, why not go completely out of the country? I grew up in Russia and Malaysia, so that wasn't too much of a stretch. And I did a couple commercials there and wrote the gesture and the word, and that's kind of how it's gotten to this point in my life. Tell me a little bit about your inspiration for this story specifically. If you've ever been to Paris, which you have, because I've seen you there. I've, we visited you when we came through town. We visited, yes. <laughs> and uh, But the big thing about Paris is it's a people-watching city. Every corner has a flower shop. There's all these postal workers walking around. And I would always sit at 6, 7 in the morning, journaling, drinking my coffee, and watching these postal workers delivering mail. And I thought, well, what would happen if they started reading the mail? Would a postcard that's handmade intrigued them. And that came from an idea that I had at Rhode Island School of Design. My friends and I would create handmade postcards to each other and write letters. I had the idea that what if one of these postcards ended up in the hands of a postal worker? And that led me to the poetry behind it, which was inspired a lot by Pablo Neruda. So this was kind of like a collage of ideas. So Pablo Neruda's poetry made me think of what if this was a love letter? What if it was something that was being written to a woman? And then my friend was a burlesque dancer and a florist. So I thought, well, what if that was a part of the movie? And then I was in France. And so I wanted that French feel of like Amelie. So that came into the film. And then lastly, Eric, who travels around the world, me growing up overseas and always wanting to backpack, I thought, well, what if that was part of the movie? So the film itself is multi-layered because there's so many different aspects of the movie that came in from my personal life and the people I know around me. Now, you wrote the film while you were in Paris, 
but I know that at least the filming was done in LA. When did you come back from Paris and, and what was the status of the project when you came back to the States? Well, I came back previously in 2018 to shoot two spec commercials and a PSA for hashtag me too with Matt. That's where I met him. And while I was here on that visit, I kind of started thinking, well, maybe I should be back in Los Angeles because, well, it's the capital of cinema, apparently in America. So I thought, why not come back? I've heard that. Yes. Yeah. So I thought, let's go back to America. I felt like I kind of stopped my career, kind of put it on pause. So in 2018, in October, I came back to Los Angeles, moved back to an apartment in Hollywood. And with my producer, Andrea Fellers at the time, who I'd worked with on a handful of movies since and projects since 2007 to 2018, we just started developing the film further. And that's when I talked to Matt because I had worked with him before and thought, hey, Matt, I got this idea. It's a crazy little short film. It shouldn't take too long. And then Matt showed up and- And I told her, re- rewrite the whole thing. Yeah, I was doing this <laughs> one. I'm just kidding. I was kidding. Just Everybody's kidding. a critic. Well, so Matt, that's a good time to hand over to you. So you met Alexis working on these commercials and uh, the spec stuff from 2018. Uh, talk to me more about what you were up to at the time and you're getting involved. Yeah. So when I met Alexis, we first met and worked on those couple projects. One was a fashion uh, commercial. So it was beauty, fashion, hair, makeup. Well, actually two of them were, were that. And then obviously the, the women's uh, Me Too, which was also a fashion film uh, with a little bit different of a end goal uh, with the messaging. But around that time, I was working on um, essentially commercial music video, fashion and beauty project. I bounce around to project to project because that's the freelance life. And so every week is different and every month you're working on something new. I've always had a really big passion for narrative work and I love narrative film. And I had shot you know, some films before that. So it was a cool little, hey, she's got this uh, you know, narrative film, which I love. And it was a great story. And uh, we had already vibed really well on the previous projects. So it was kind of a, you know, it was a good timing. Well, before we talk more about pre-production and what it took to bring in the rest of the crew, et cetera, talk to me about the scale of this project. For listeners who haven't watched it yet, this is more than a simple short film. In other words, it's not a student project. It's not something that was thrown together quickly. There's clearly a lot of effort that went into this. Yes, that was a big thing that I wanted to do is to have something that looks like a feature film in a short film. And we put over $100,000 into the movie. We had amazing people on board from Matt to our choreographer had worked with Paula Abdul as a dancer for her at one point. We have two of our dancers are on with Andrea Botticelli and Donnie Osman. Our actors were Paul Dooley, who you know from um, Sixteen Candles. And then you've got James Michael Tyler, who was in the show Friends, and Nicola Liberté and uh, Roxanne Mesquita, who have both been in movies that have opened in Cannes, and Andrew Creer, who was on the TV show Lethal Weapon. So these were not people that we were getting off, you know, hey, come out and do a movie with us. We went to their managers. Some of them were friends of ours. We were very sure on making this as professional as possible. We paid our crew, we paid our cast. I'm a very big believer that if you want to work with the best, you have to treat them like the best. The joke is always have great food on set. It's always like <laughs> right. feed your yeah. cast and crew. 
I, I don't know, Matt, if you remember our craft service sometimes. Yeah, it was good. Yeah. It, but the, the size of it, right. we had this amazing treatment. I hope my cast and crew feel that way. And with Matt, we worked with the Airy Mini Alexa. We had Cook Anamorphics. We worked with a very successful, talented colorist. Every step of the way, we were putting the money and the effort and the talent where it needed to be. For me as a cinematographer, it was kind of nice that everybody was on the same page in terms of the producer, the director. Everybody was like, no, no, this is going to be a real film. Because when I hear short film, I go, oh, no. How many hundreds is the budget? You know, <laughs> what is it, 500? You know what I mean? Like, you know, who's trying to make what on, you know, scraps? Um, so, <laughs> There's no jelly in these sandwiches. <laughs> really? I mean... <laughs> Some of these projects that come through, you're just like, wow. But that was a big relief. And I, ha I already had a, a feeling that Alexis and her team were going to be very much at a certain level because uh, we had shot two projects before that and we had kept the production value and professionalism at a certain level on those. So it was a big relief. It's like, okay, we've, we've got some money. We can pay the crew proper rates. They're not going to back out the last second, the day before call time. They're not going to, you're not going to lose the locations. You're not going to lose your talent because that's a big problem. You kind of do have to just put real money into it if you want to get a real project. You know, it's like you get what you pay for. I know people have told me in the past where they're like, oh, how much was your short? And I'll say, well, it was this. And they kind of give me this disdainful, like, oh, you spent too much on your short. I did my short for $5,000. And I'm like, did you pay your crew? Did you have insurance? How many locations did you have? Right. Were you SAG signatory? Were you paying them minimum? We, we did, what is it? His favorite donations. Everything was above board. We paid into SAG. We were serious about what we were doing. And even when I read the first script, I mean, the first iterations of the story, it was like, Alexis, you, you realize this is a, it's a big undertaking, but like, you can't do this with a low butt. You need to do this right. Like you need to give it what it's worth. It's got all these great locations and these, you know, the actors and actresses in it are, they need to be real people to make it shine. So it's like, you, you couldn't have done that film with much less than that. So, so with that approach then, if you're not calling in favors for folks to, to do the work for free, where did you find your crew? Well, where did you source it? Was it people you'd worked with before for either of you as far as building out the team? Well, I think a lot of it with Andrea and I working together for several years off and on and having worked with Matt, we also worked with our production designer, Anna, our costume designer, Matt, uh, the other Matt. <laughs> I think it was also our makeup artist lady had worked on projects that we had done prior but then I know Matt brought on Jeff, our gaffer, and Nick, who is one of our three or four city cam operators, but our main city cam operator. And we pulled in people that we trusted, that right. we had worked together. Basically, everyone was pretty, like, came in with a desire to be there, which right. is huge. Because sometimes you could be on big movies, and you're like, why am I doing this? <laughs> you hire people who obviously have a very good uh they meld well with your style and your workflow. And I do the same thing. It's like, I don't want anybody being hired who has an attitude, who thinks they're too cool for the film, who thinks they're the best of the best. I'm just like, I don't have time for it. And that's why we got Jeff Chastler, the gaffer, because Jeff's been doing it for 30 years and he's worked on the biggest movies. And he's just there because he loves filmmaking. He's already done it all. He's already lit the big stars and stuff. And and luckily I came up with him like 15 years ago as an electrician. And so I knew him and, and he's a sweetheart. 
it helped a lot because some of the days were a little rough and he had the know-how on how to get us out of certain situations or preemptively get us moving faster or whatever it was and didn't have to babysit him. You got to hire people you can't babysit. And people like Jeff, this could be the rest of the podcast could be an appreciation of <laughs> Jeff Strassler. The Jeff Strassler podcast. That. Like Jeff was so there. There was a, a trust. There was a dedication. And so many like Nick, Steadicam operator, everyone that was there, the actors that were there, you know, having someone like Paul Dooley who's done over 200 projects, you're like, he said, yes, it was the first thing. Like the fact that he said, yes, I was like, Are, did am I dreaming? So talk to me more about reaching out to those actors and getting them to say yes. I know pretty much everyone on your short is an accomplished actor with credits to their name. They didn't do this for exposure. Well, James Michael Tyler, our actor playing Gilbert, was one of my best friends in the world. So that was basically pretty easy. <laughs> You're just like, hey, nudge him. But the thing is, it's a good script. Michael read the script and felt really connected to the character who very much had the same like kindness, sweetness, heart that Michael had. Then you have someone like Paul Dooley who it had to have been the script. It just had to have been. I met Paul through Bruce Birchmore, a friend of mine. We were sitting at the bar one day and he's like, I said, I need an older actor. And he goes, I know a guy. And that's how we got Paul. We found Nicola Liberté, who played Eloise through Andrea Fellers, our producer, who also had a friend who was on Lethal Weapon, who introduced us to Andrew Creer, who played Eric. Roxanne Mosquito was the only person we didn't know personally. And we went to her manager. I was looking actually for a French actress and I learned that she was in the vicinity at the time. And I was like, oh my God, can we get Roxanne Mosquito? This is a very talented actress in France and here. It's always the script when it's this sort of project. Much agreed. Well, let's get down into more of the specifics. So what was your actual shooting schedule? Were you guys shooting weekends or did you shoot it solid? Like, how did that work out? Six days, Monday through Saturday. The total script was, what, 20 pages? 20-something pages? I think 23 pages. Yeah, so we shot three pages, three and a half pages a day in terms of the actual workflow, which is, you know, that's sort of right in the middle. It's not like crazy slow but it's also not six or seven pages a day, which yeah. is what a lot of people's schedules are on projects, which is just really hard to keep up with. But there are those days that like our first day, which was at the Lost Property Bar at uh, in Hollywood. I would have loved to have had two days. Oh my goodness. Right. Because we had a four hour lighting of the spot. And then what, you had like two hours to, to clear out. We had a 12 hour window because it was a live bar and we did a bar scene a dance montage, and then the heroin dance sequence all in about seven hours. Yeah, I think it was less than that, actually. I think it was, <laughs> it was less, much than, less than that. <laughs> yeah, and the bar scene was mainly sticks. And I always was told, shoot your simplest shot, the first shot in the movie on the first day, because then your whole crew and cast will be like, she's right. So right. we shot the bar scene, which was not that easy. I think it was also the stress of losing, you know, not losing, but having those four hours of prep, having that 12 hours, shooting the bar scene. And then we had the dance sequence 360 with a steady cam. And it was It was a pretty important scene. You know? It was a pretty important scene. And the one thing short films are a learning experience. Every film is a learning experience. And there are things on this movie that I'm like, well, I'll never do that again. Or there are things <laughs> on this movie. <laughs> 
the things right. on this movie that I'm like, wow, that turned out a lot better than I thought it would. Or what I didn't get, other people think is beautiful. Like that's the best thing when you feel that you haven't gotten what you really were setting out for, but everyone's like, oh my God, that, you know, that was just incredible. And you're like, yay. To go on the schedule a little more. So obviously it was, it was six days. Alexis is speaking on our first day of production, which we had two really, I think, long, tough, important days that required a lot of moving around, a lot of resets, a lot of scenes. And that was our first day, which was kind of an overnight. We started at 3 a.m. And we did till I think three to three or something like that, right? Yeah, three to three or three to four. Yeah, three to three. So you guys should be cleared out before that bar location opened for business. Yes. Right. And I think within the first hour or two, I showed up an hour later than everyone else. And I think Alexis was around my time too to get our extra hour of sleep. But I think we had already ran into like half of the area that we were going to shoot. We weren't even allowed to actually shoot in, we find out. And so we had to, I mean, there was the second we showed up, it was putting out fires. I got to hand it to the crew because that was a rough day. And I probably would have just quit after that if I was like, <laughs> you know, if I was on my crew, like, oh, who is this guy? What did he get me into? Like, we're, we're just going nonstop for 12 hours. But yeah, we had this really, really intense lighting setup that took a really long time. It took longer than I expected. Um, but Jeff and his team, you know, they did it safely and, you know, they did it right, which is the most important. And then something that we, me and Alexis kind of got in the habit, not really the habit, but we leaned on a lot was these two really hard days. We just didn't have as much time as we originally thought we would. We started uh, implementing single shots where we would just do a oneer. You know, we'd be mm -hmm. sitting there and we'd go, well, the, the storyboard has six shots. And I'd look at Alexis and I'd say, oh, we got 30 <laughs> minutes. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, can this make sense? Can it serve the story? And can it be powerful if we do it as a oneer? Let's get the steady cam up and let's just do it as a winner. It worked a few times very well and it saved us. Um, I'm not saying you should do that all, all the time, but we had to lean off of our original approach a lot. Yeah. And, and that's <laughs> that, that happens. And it's not that we didn't pre-produce. It's that every day you walk on set, everything goes backwards and everything gets tipped on its head. And then you have to figure out how to fix it all and still get your day in. Schedule-wise, we, we really had two, two tough days, and then the rest of them were really, I think we flowed really well. Everybody was in good spirits, good energy. We weren't going too fast. We were getting quality scenes. The first one was rough. The other day that Matt is thinking about, I think I think you're talking about the travel sequence. Right, because that was a lot of different stuff. We went through nine countries in one backyard and one house. <laughs> And so we had nine locations and we went from Spain, Portugal, Turkey, Russia, Japan, Malaysia, Morocco, and India. And then that was what, seven hours that we shot that? Yeah, something. Thank God it was without sound. It was without sound. It was just these moments. And then the rest of the day, we shot all of the interior for Gilbert. So it was the sort of thing where we have Anna running around outside creating these moments and she must have thought I was insane because like I need a Moroccan tent. <laughs> right. <laughs> what I do with this is that I have very detailed lookbooks and re reference guides. I know exactly what I want and then I trust the people that I have with me to really bring it to life for me. And then we have this house that is very has a very Asian aesthetic and had a Chinese bed in it. We had to turn around and make it into a, a guy's apartment that has nothing to do with the aesthetic of this house, right. which again was <laughs> Anna 
and Jeff and you and in the space using Nick with Steadicam. And it was, it was a rough day. Yeah. Those are, those were, that was a day where we had a lot of different locations to squeeze into one location and make work, you know, like, okay, turn, turn the camera the other way. We're going to make that a bedroom now. Okay. Everyone go, <laughs> you know, okay. Now we're going to make this an office on it. Look the other way. It's an office, you know, but we did it. You know, it all worked yeah. out. You know, it was a lot to do that day, but you know, thankfully we had, yeah, we had uh, really solid people and, and we chose to shoot a lot of it on Steadicam to, to keep our speed, our speed going. And, and it also worked for the film though. A lot of, a lot of it was, you know, it was, the guy's writing poetry. I mean, he's writing letter. I mean, it's a very, you know, the Steadicam is a very flowing kind of like writing a love letter. So we, we saved time using a Steadicam and we probably made Nick work really a lot more than he anticipated, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but Hey, what are you going to do? <laughs> and, and poor Nick, cause I love Steadicam and all my other stuff with Matt has been Steadicam, Steadicam. I just think it's, but then there is the whole decision and that's maybe a later conversation where you have to decide what you're going to use at the moment. You, if you walk into a scene, you might be like, oh my God, that'd be so much better a static cam, or we need three shots to be one shot, or hey, look at that. Like this, the shot of Eloise in the, in the flower shop. I think Matt and I walked in and went, oh, put the camera here, sticks, shoot, boom. It's one of the prettiest shots in the movie, in my opinion. Yeah, that was a tiny, that was a tiny location too. That was, I mean, just the usual stuff you run into you walk into a place you're like this is a lot smaller than i thought it was like, <laughs> wow we can't fit study cam anywhere <laughs> like what's you know but it worked out yeah. yeah so this might be asking you to choose between your children but are there scenes that each of you hold as your favorite whether it was the challenge or just how it came together talk to me about your favorite moments in the film well matt i think part of it might be that dance sequence with Eloise because we choreographed it together in my right. apartment and then because Nate our choreographer did the montage but you and I really we took an, your iPhone and we seeing that come to life and seeing right. that happen I think really was kind of like seeing your kid go to school and actually graduate and pass so it right. was and having that beautiful shot of her between the doorway it all came together. That was one of my favorites. I think the montage of him traveling is one of my favorites. And I think that last bit of Eloise and Gilbert speaking at the end, it's one shot at the end. And it's so, to me, has such heart. And then, you know, it's, it's yeah, it's like hard choosing your child, but <laughs> the way you, you and Jeff lit the last uh, scene with Rostal and... Gilbert in at night. The nighttime, yeah, yeah, the nighttime. That was interior. that was beautiful, and it just we did a good job, and it's wonderful to see your work and go. Oh, I don't suck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was that was actually that ending scene, um, and that was a really powerful scene too in the movie. I mean, that was uh, you know Gilbert really opened up, and he was you know that you know he's breaking down, crying, he's trying to be consoled um, by Rostal and. It was, uh, I think that was like an overnight too. So we were working all night on that. And we've got this 93 year old, maybe 94 year old actor that like, we can't keep waiting all night. Like we need to get that scene done. And it's a really pretty scene, you know, and it's a really powerful scene, you know, cause even when we were shooting it, when I saw um, Gilbert on camera, he's acting, but man, I was just so connected with him. Like he's, you know, he's breaking down and he just nailed it. And it's when he's reading, uh, I don't know, he's not reading something. He's just standing in front of uh, Rostal. 
saying that he's not good enough. And how do I be, you know, how do I be a better, uh, you know, uh, how do I tell a woman I love her and stuff? And he's breaking down and he's crying. And it was just so we just, I think I even looked at you, Alexa, and I was like, holy crap, like, wow, we, we got it. <laughs> and we did it in two takes. That's yeah. <laughs> another thing. We were working so fast and thank God you have these these level of factors because sometimes it's like well we have time for two things yeah yeah exactly and we didn't have rehearsal and we didn't have a table read some of these actors came to set and i had spoken to them on the phone or i had three hours where i talked to michael about gilbert it really was the sort of thing where i would love to have had rehearsals and things of that nature and it, as i get more hopefully successful that can happen but you have to trust these actors to just nail it out and if you only have two three takes worth of time right or you lose the rest of your day it's yeah there was also i don't know if you remember this scene but there was also and this is just how good the actors were but uh andrew is he's walking with roxanne towards the mailboxes and gilbert is there sifting through the mail and uh, he bumps into the gate you know and, and i think the metal gate like kind of jabbed him in the abdomen pretty good and, and he plays it off and he just oh i didn't know walks right through it and this was a oneer. it was a long shot it was a one minute long shot so he couldn't really just start over it was like you got to keep going dude keep moving keep the scene going and he did and he, he they ended with them to looking at the a postcard that wasn't written by him and then we've got gilbert in the center in between them and we rock focus to gilbert you know and he, it was just a perfect everything just worked perfect it was kind of like a happy mistake it worked we we needed it to work and it did on the same shot when Andrew and Roxanne are walking up to Gilbert at the mailboxes, Andrew Creer says something to the effect of, well, I'll buy you an atlas. That wasn't in the scene. That wasn't oh, in the fuck. script. And I was like, awesome. I, I just like talk to each other as you're walking up. And he's like, I'll buy you an atlas. And we kept it and we brought that level up. And I'm like, oh my God, that's perfect. Like that's such a perfect little moment. And then Paul was doing, um, when he goes, uh, your breath smells like honeysuckle and your lips are like a, a, a miniature rose. I didn't write that. It was like perfect where Paul was just like ad-libbing and we're like, we'll add that. And it was just these happy accidents. They're just so good. You let it happen too, though. Yeah. Some directors, that's not what was in the script. You know, it's like, no, I mean, that was actually better than what was in the, like, it worked. It was wonderful. Yeah. And you just let them do their thing and they're great actors and it, they took the reins and it ended up working out. There was one experience that I, I really remember was when Paul was doing the dialogue for the love letter, the big love letter that he was doing. And I'm sitting there at Video Village and I'm like, wait, looking at the script, like, yes, these are my words. <laughs> he's, he's not ad-libbing. It was that sort of thing where, yeah, it's good when you write it and you're like, I think this is good. But then you see an actor of that caliber delivering your words. It was a nice, it was a nice experience. So talk to me about lessons learned. Knowing what you know now, is there anything you would have done differently? I would have liked more days just to give myself a little bit more breathing room. I don't think there's anything I really would want to do differently to this film. But I know for the next film, I want to push even further into the visuals. I want to push further into the multi-layering, the visual lookbooks, the things of that nature where... Like Matthew, our costume designer's idea was to have each flower reflected in the dress she wore. That was his idea. More of that, more of really bringing that bouquet to life, going more. That was my big lesson. 
trust yourself. Maybe that was my big lesson. It's like really trust right. yourself, trust your gut. I have the greatest team around me. Let's just do it again. And yeah. How about you, Matt? Anything from the technical side or the way you, you structured shots that you do differently? I, I mean, there's, you, you rewatch the film and geez, I don't know how many times we've watched this, Alexis. Like you've probably seen it 500 times just through the editorial process and color grading. And, and, and I've maybe seen it like 50 times. And gosh, every time you watch it, you're just like, oh, we could have did that a little, you know, you know, when you're, when you're going through it with a fine tooth comb and, and you did the lighting and the camera work, you're like, oh, that was, you know, you notice every little flaw that, because you remember being on set and, and what you did wrong at that moment. But for me, it's always, uh, oh, we could have lit that a little differently. Like, oh, I could have made that look a little more realistic or a little more set. But you, in the moment, you know, you have, you have a clock ticking and you have money on the line and you have people's kind of days on the line and, um, and you, you have to fight your battles and you have to choose your battles that you're going to fight. And so some of the scenes you, we got to just really, you know, make them look really amazing. And I was really happy with them. And then others, we had to kind of take concessions. We had to move a little quickly or we had to mm -hmm. not spend as much time lighting them. And that's just part of the game. That's just, if you're not shooting a hundred million dollar film, it's you, you're going to take those hits here and there. But I agree with Alexis. I think maybe one or two more days would have given us some really nice breathing room. You know, to, it, it would have been a different film because we would have gotten more coverage and we would have gotten different shots and angles. So I think it would have turned out to be a different film. But looking back, it would have been nice to have a little breathing room. But you can't really complain when we got a great film out of it. Like we got exactly what we wanted, <laughs> you know. I think also, I uh, yes, I've seen it hundreds and hundreds of times, but I haven't gotten bored of it yet. That's the weird part. Like, I don't see it every day, so that's probably why. But I watch it, and then seeing other people's reactions to it, that's what makes me go, yes, I can see you there and go, oh, that buzzed, or that was this, or that was that, or I would have liked to have done this with that. But then I turn around, and someone's like, I loved it. Right. And I'm like, okay, then I'm fine. The, the reaction we've had to this film, they don't notice the little things that Matt and I notice. Right. And that's why we do it. We do it for other people. We do it for ourselves, but we also do it for our audience. Well, speaking of that audience, so you've got the film you want. Talk to me about getting it out there in front of people and how that leads into the film festival circuit. Well, I'm working with Rebecca Louisa Smith, who's the film festival doctor. And she has been amazing with getting our film out there. She takes care of everything. I can also sit there and go, hey, have you thought about this film festival or that film festival? But she really takes care of everything on that end. But because of the pandemic, I've been to maybe four or five festivals only, like in person. But I've done a lot of Q&As. I've done a lot of online interviews. I've done a lot of like having to video myself and being like, hey, watch my film. And uh, it's been a very interesting experience to not be in front of your audience because the few times I have been, it's been small theaters with not that many people. And I do feel kind of like it would have been such an interesting experience without a pandemic. Yeah. Because we sure. went, <laughs> we got into Holly Shorts, we got into LA Shorts, we got into Cleveland International. These are three Oscar qualifiers. Like it would have been amazing to go to these places and physically be with not only your audience, but your peers. Right. But other than that, it's been, and being watching the film reviewed on Amaletto, we have almost 210,000 views. Wow. We've gotten almost 600 people commenting since November 2nd. And 99% of the people that respond 
are like, we love it. But I mean, Alexa, you, you, I, I have to hand it to you because you made a film and we kind of got dealt some pretty crappy hands in terms of, and everybody, the world did, right? I mean, the pandemic happened, right? So that's not downplaying everyone else's troubles, but in terms of releasing a film, it was probably the hardest time to release a film into a festival circuit because, you know, part of the film festival thing is like you go to the festival, there's the parties, the after parties, you have hundreds of people in the seats watching your film and you're seeing people's reactions live happening in front of you. You didn't really get any of that. You got a couple of times. I think you did get to go to theaters and stuff. But, you know, I I always kind of wonder what would have happened if this had been a normal film festival year. I think it would have become more popular and I think it would have gotten more recognition. And it, you know, because watching stuff on a computer screen, it's not the same as going to the cinema. It really isn't. And so I think given those sort of hurdles, the fact that you, I think of 65 awards across all the different departments of the award. I mean, it was every single kind of award I think you can win for it. I mean, yeah, it did pretty darn well for what it was up against, you know, for the past two years in terms of how it could get released, you know, and how it could be watched. And it's cool that Amaletto blew up so well, like 200,000 views. That's great. <laughs> that's insane. And we haven't started uh, like heavy hitting PR. We have social media with Monica Morales and Leah Griffin. We're going with a PR firm that is going to help us try to get it out there because I can't say what it is yet, but we did get offered distribution for worldwide and we're waiting for that to go through. That's the next step that we did get picked up that someone does want to show us. I think a lot of people, they, they do their shorts and they're like, I showed it out there. But it's like, I'm going to take this like it is a feature and push it to the very end until finally I can take the next step and Matt and I can do a feature. And that you, you touched upon something good, Alex, you said a lot of shorts, they don't actually get finished. And that's a lot of times I don't, I don't shoot short films because of the, the problem of getting them done. <laughs> you know, they get shot and then editorial post never gets finished. And then it never goes to festivals. Nobody ever sees it. And it was a waste of time for everyone's time. It was like, why did we even work on it? <laughs> we should have just left it on paper. And so that kind of touches back on the fact that you had a real budget. You had real investors, you had real people, real crew, professional crew. Everybody involved was expecting it to be in top festivals. You know, they were like, oh, that's where this is going. And so, you know, the fact that it got finished and it went to all the festivals as a short film is, you know, kind of puts it out amongst uh, amongst a few because a lot of those projects don't ever get done. <laughs> it's a sad truth, you know. And then like Skid, I had talked to you about this prior. We became oscar eligible we put the film into the landmark theater for seven days and a lot of people are like why would you do that and because we did three oscar qualifiers to get into the oscar pool you have to have won best picture for that but since we didn't win best picture at those three festivals i had to go and put the film into the landmark theater in la for seven days to get on the eligibility list for the nomination for the oscars we didn't get on the short list but it was something that I felt very passionate about doing because my cast and crew deserved that chance. And you have to believe in yourself. Like you're in a, an industry where we're crazy enough to make movies. Like you have to, you have to believe in yourself. And a doctor of mine said, fear is the price of admission. And my mother keeps reminding me of that. It is frightening to put yourself out there and to say, I'm probably not going to get this nomination, but I want to be in the room. And that was a big thing for me. I wanted to be in the room 
to be told no, because you know you're not going to get a yes if you don't do anything. The no is there if you don't do it. So that's interesting. I was not familiar with that. So the films that end up being the shorts for Oscar nominees, there's a pool that includes the winners of those specific festivals and also anyone who has, uh, as you said, seven days in an actual theatrical release. Am I understand that correctly? Yes. You are either the winner of a major Oscar qualifier or you put yourself in a theater in a specific I think it's either LA, New York, and maybe a couple other cities, but they have to be specific theaters, I believe. And yeah, we just, why not? And we got to have two events as part of it and got people to see the movie. Well, as you alluded to the future of the film, and that's exciting about the wider possible release, but both of you take a few minutes and tell me about what's next for you. Matt, why don't you go first on this one? Sure. So for me, I think uh, in terms of my uh, my vision for the future of my role in filmmaking and the film industry is I, I definitely want to delve into uh, more long form you know, narrative. So feature episodic types of projects and uh, tell stories and, and help shoot stories that are, you know, that are important stories. That's what I really loved about this film was that it was just nobody is making a love film anymore. Just a good old there it is you know it's not clouded by political unrest or or social unrest or all of these other it's just a film that makes you feel good they're just not being made anymore and so i would love to obviously continue making more films like this uh, and with alexis of course and then uh yeah and then I'll, I'll continue to do commercials and and other you know fun artistic you know projects um and stuff like that but uh yeah definitely more features for sure my mom says I spend a lot of plates. And so I have a couple things that are being worked on. I do one day possibly want to do the gesture and the word as a feature, but since the loss of our main actor, I really feel that that needs to live on its own before I ever consider doing that again, uh, out of respect for him. For listeners not aware, James Michael Tyler did pass away. So what I am working on is I have a script called The Burden of Life that I wrote in Paris that is going to be put into script competitions, but it's too big of a budget for me right now to do as a first feature, unless someone out there wants to give me the money. So I wrote a script also in Paris inspired by the 2015 terror attack that I experienced uh, when I was there. So I'm writing that and I'm also working on a feature called Beneath the Undercurrent that is basically about a writer who is losing it and her main character comes to life in her imagination and it's that relationship between these two and does it end well so it's not the love story of the gesture and the word but these are all projects that i hope matt and i can move forward on because matt is just incredible so i this could be the matt appreciation podcast as well But I really, I have uh, partial funding for the movie already. I have about $400,000 that I have access to. And it's a one location, multi-layered film. So I am talking to other investors about maybe getting it to a million, but I'm trying to figure out what my first feature, where it's actually going to sit. Because with the way we shoot, we need the proper funding and budget to make it on that level again. So Alexis, you brought up, you know, James Michael Tyler, obviously 
was in our film, was a very big part of our film. And sadly, he passed away from prostate cancer um, after the film was released. And I just wanted to tell the listeners that if you haven't seen the film yet, working on it with him was just, it was a, it was a really insane experience because I had no idea. Nobody knew on set that he was dealing with prostate cancer. He showed up every day, happy, hardworking, smiling, doing his job and really doing a great job. And I just think it was such a special, uh, it was a, a special experience. The, the film is a great way to, to keep him living on for people to go and see that and see him. To work with my one of my best friends and knowing that there's something out there that people can see him at such an amazing, as Gilbert, as a character that no one's ever expected him to be. I hope that people do see him because he was so incredible. And I want people to see how incredible he really was. Because if you weren't lucky enough to know the man, at least you can see him shine in this. Definitely. Well, listeners, if you got this far but haven't seen the film, uh, I'll list it again. You can go to amuleto.com. Amuleto is spelled O-M-E-L-E-T-O. And then follow that with a backslash 257-318 backslash. To both of you, congratulations on this film. Good luck with your future endeavors. Appreciate you guys coming on the show. Hope we'll see you again. Thank you. Thank you very much, Skip. Listeners, I hope you're enjoying Season 10. If you're new to the podcast, I'd encourage you to check out our catalog. It's easy to peruse past episodes at the website, blowthelineoneword.biz. That's B-I-Z. All episodes of the podcast are also now on IMDb, so you can cross-reference the film credits of my guests. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and rate us if you like what you hear. If you've got questions or comments, you can send email to skid, S-K-I-D, at blowthelineoneword.biz. If you're on Facebook, you can find photos and other behind-the-scenes materials at Podcast Below the Line. And finally, you can follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram. It's at Pod Below the Line. Thanks to Curtis Five for our music and John Juan for our logo. The logo is available on t-shirts, mugs, and stickers at redbubble.com. Loyal listeners, you are much appreciated. If you're enjoying the podcast, please tell your friends. We'll be back again next week. I heard a car or something. It won't matter if you're on my side. I can fix it. I've got motorcycles. It might have been on my side. It's okay. okay. Let me let me let me tell Monica that I'm doing this real quick. Monica, I'm on the call. I'm on the call. I just want to let you know. Yeah, tell her to stop driving around. No. Matt. Yeah, that's. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no doing construction right now. Okay. Carry on. <laughs>